Chapter 6 What do you see? Will chuckles. Jack asks me all the time, usually while I'm looking at a body. You're not looking at a body now, so what do you see? The sky? The stars? I'm not sure why I'm doing this, Hannibal. They're lying on their backs, side by side. Several blankets are layered between them and the snow and stubble of the field, including the furnace-hot fluff of the quivette blanket Will is probably never going to be able to look at again without blushing. Vision is the sharpest human sense. On a night sufficiently clear and dark, properly acclimated, a baseline human eye can see a candle flame fifty kilometers away. The primary practical advantage of sentinel vision is increasing resolution of tiny details at short range. Right, like how Beverly Katz and I don't need stereo microscopes. I'm not going to suddenly see planets around a star, so why am I here? You already use your sight very well analytically, Will, and have enough control over it to be safe in most circumstances. Still required to drive with flash glasses. Will is fronting. He would wear the glasses even if he wasn't required to as an excuse to still have them on his face when he has to talk to people, and they really do make driving on wet roads in the sun, or at night against jackasses with their high beams on, less of a trial. But you don't use it nearly often enough in a non-practical manner, to appreciate instead of analyze. Will you ever tire of banging that drum? When you pick up the beat on your own, perhaps? Will snorts. Okay, so, rural night sky appreciation. Let's dial up. He settles his hands on his stomach and breathes out, trying to widen his focus the way he would at a crime scene, but only looking in one direction, up. Firstly, what color is the void? Black. Is it? Look again. Will blinks. Well, all right. It's actually deep blue. The atmosphere doesn't go away just because the daylight does. Very good. Now look at the space without any stars. Can you dial up until you can see some? I can try. Will reaches internally and widens his eyes, trying to collect every bit of available light. In the space between two stars, slowly, a speck of white becomes visible, and then several. There. Now look at the rest of the sky again. Oh. Will breathes. There are so many. The entire sky is blazing with points of light, like flowers spilled on a dark floor. You've really never done this before? The warm puff of Hannibal's breath against his face indicates he's no longer looking at the sky. I've lived a few places remote enough, but I don't think I would have forgotten this. I had a tutor who taught me to stargaze. He was likely put up to it to give me something to do while everyone else slept, but he framed it as a math problem. It was my first experience with consciously opening myself to beauty. Will knows without asking that Hannibal is thinking of the time before his parents died. His English becomes slower and more accented when he has to translate his thoughts. Will smiles, imagining a serious little boy wandering under the night sky, probably with a notebook, to record his findings for his next lesson. You don't have any art of the stars. Hannibal draws mainly people and buildings, and his art collection runs the gamut, but Will hasn't seen anything with a celestial theme. The only piece we're seeing is in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Van Gogh? Story Night seems a little... plebeian for Hannibal, who can barely bring himself to serve a dish that can't be described in French. One of my first excursions after I emigrated. Will looks up at the stars and thinks about how his companion always chooses the best, the most rarefied, 
It leads well to some discomforting conclusions about how Hannibal sees him. He knows they sailed past all normal guide-client boundaries long ago. Guide-sentinel relationships are a much murkier area, but Will is not going there. Hannibal is spending his free time with Will, choosing to spend it with him. He has to admit, the regard goes both ways. It's one of the reasons he's hesitant to make a move, actually, on top of the tiny detail of Hannibal being a man. There are so few people he likes, who like him. He doesn't want to risk their friendship. Hannibal's cooking and conversation and eagerness to push Will's senses until Will spills over into unprecedented bliss. For a chance at what? Romance? Putting his hands on Hannibal? Getting Hannibal's hands on the front of him? Sure, that would be a hell of a thing. But what about where they would live? And does Will have to dress quite so much like a lumberjack? And is Will sure he can't see his way clearer to adopting out some of his dogs? The last is ungenerous. Hannibal indulges his dogs more than Will does. Will is just scared. He speaks up to distract himself from his tiresome, roundabout thoughts. Van Gogh's friends thought that he doomed himself by opening himself to nature so completely. You don't worry about that with me? Van Gogh didn't have me, Hannibal says firmly. Will grins up into the roaring light of space. No, he did not. The following week, Will finds himself at the Baltimore State Hospital for the criminally insane, where screams are all but baked into the bricks. He thinks about the distinction between attention from people like Hannibal and Alana, which she enjoys, and attention from most other people, which he despises. Will's friends like spending time with him because he is Will. Most other people would prefer if he didn't have a name at all. Jack wanders back and forth over the line between the two. But when he is in the latter camp, it's usually because he wants to stop people from dying, so Will tolerates it. And then there's this asshole. Fours are, of course, the rarest group of odd bodies to begin with, drawls Frederick Chilton. Like fluorine, reliably unstable. They manifest into sentinels at the drop of a hat. To still be one at your age is noteworthy on its own. And then there's the rest of your personality disorders and neuroses. A unique cocktail that makes you a highly skilled profiler. Even Jack sounds like he's restraining his distaste. Mr. Graham isn't here to be analyzed. Perhaps he should be, sniffs Chilton. We are woefully short of material on your sort of thing, Mr. Graham. Will wants to scream, that he might be holding the keys to the Chesapeake Ripper. And yet somehow, Chilton gets to prattle on as if Will is the pathological one. Sometimes he has to remind himself that he hunts people for murder, not ugliness. Ugliness is everywhere. Thank you, Dr. Chilton. I'd like to see the crime scene now. Miss Lowndes is graceless but dogged, Hannibal comments. She knew about the murder at Baltimore State before the FBI did. Well, she isn't constrained by ethical standards, Will says. Is it true, do you think? Has the Ripper been locked up this whole time? Will shakes his head. I don't think so. It doesn't feel right. How so? A few reasons, but the main one is Gideon's a garden-variety psychopath. Shallow, impulsive. I've reconstructed so many killers just like him that the nurse felt like... Paint by numbers. He planned it just enough to get his jollies and no further. You don't think the Ripper's a psychopath? Will rubs the back of his neck. If he is, he's the most intelligent one I've ever heard of. Even more so than Nicholas Boyle. Boyle affected superiority until he couldn't be bothered. It sticks in Hannibal's craw to pass off his gifts to Will as a dead fool's pitiful, psychosexual obsession with the girls themselves, but there's nothing for it. 
and the Ripper always bothers. You know, I've never actually seen a Ripper crime scene in person. Just photos, reports. So I could be wrong. I doubt it. I would be very interested to hear your thoughts. Okay, I think the total lack of remorse or guilt is about the only psychopathic marker he's got. Killing is... his art. Every murder is a complete and original work, and part of the work is that he remains at large. A ghost looming larger than life in the collective unconsciousness. Hannibal quotes a particularly pleasing op-ed he once read about himself. Yes, compromising his art is anathema to him. He would no more repeat himself or let himself be identified then. Then you would suddenly start serving takeout from McDonald's. Hannibal stops breathing. Clever, clever, clever boy. He grapples with the abrupt urge to kill Will then and there, eat his heart still beating and his brain still warm. Will gives him too much credit when he says the Ripper is not impulsive. Will mistakes the source of Hannibal's disturbance. Sorry, but that's how appalled the Ripper would be if some inferior killer took responsibility for his crimes. A very effective analogy, Hannibal manages to say at last. It's just a theory. I'll get to shore it up, or not, a little more tomorrow. Alana and I are both going to interview Gideon. I look forward to hearing how it goes. I don't even need to ask if Frederick made an ass of himself yesterday, Alana says on the way to the BSHCI. Will keeps his eyes on the road. Am I that obvious? Only to someone who knows you, and who knows Frederick. He craves distinction, to the point that he sees distinctive people as valuable objects rather than people. Sounds about right. He's happy that he might have the Chesapeake Ripper in his collection. Abel Gideon's going to have to outright chew the scenery to put on a more disturbing performance. Well, I'm glad you agreed to join me in the audience. It comes with the territory. And hey, it could be worse. He could be chums with Freddie Lowndes. And I'm thinking about other losses, too, Jack chokes out. Hannibal manages not to roll his eyes, but it's a near thing. This is what comes of seeing Will off the books. Jack evidently thinks of Hannibal as a free therapy dispenser now. He makes the best of it, fortifies his kindly gentleman psychiatrist persona, and coaxes a little of Miriam Lass's story out of Jack. He was clearly grooming her to be his prized in-house profiler, just as Will is now. Jack's regret is a fissure running deep in his psyche. Hannibal resolves to widen it. It's time he made a drive up to his cottage on the coast. After Jack leaves, Hannibal gathers supplies from his office and home, a cooler and ice, recording equipment, medications, and more surgical tools than he's needed in years. It's not often that he plans to leave someone alive after he takes a piece of them. Being right isn't much fun when the things Will is right about are horrible. He told Jack. He said, if Gideon is a plagiarist, the real Chesapeake Ripper is going to make sure everybody knows it. And now, here they are, combing the phone networks for a call from a Spectre. Or maybe not a Spectre. Will points out that they never found a body, but Jack shoots the idea down with extreme prejudice. Look again, says Jack. I did my agains, says Beverly Katz, and my agains and agains. The team tries, as delicately as possible, to suggest that Jack dreamed the call. Jack states flatly, I know when I'm awake. Will wonders what it's like to feel that certain. The same day, after his lecture, the stag comes charging into his classroom, blowing and bellowing as it nears Will's desk. It feels like a portent. 
It's replaced a moment later by Jack and Alana, all afire with a plan to bait the Ripper with a tattle crime article. He's too drained to express how vigorously he thinks this is a terrible idea. Maybe he needs another night at Hannibal's house to recharge his batteries. His head's been so full of uncertainty regarding what he wants from Hannibal that he hasn't invited himself over in a while, but he knows he's going to be desperate for his guide's calming presence after being forced to sit across from Freddy's smarmy face and play ball. It's still early enough that Hannibal should be seeing patients, so he texts him, Mind if I crash at your place tonight? Hannibal responds a few minutes later, Of course, Will. You know you're always welcome. Will can't hold back a little smile at that. Anything I can bring for dinner? Just yourself. Will Graham, exclaims Beverly Katz. Are you blushing? Will jerks his head up. What? The hasty way he stuffs his phone into his pocket doesn't help matters. Oh my god, you are. Who are you texting? Nobody. Jesus, what is he, twelve? That spells somebody. Not that kind of somebody. It's just dinner. And a sleepover. But that really would be trying to put out the fire with gasoline. That wasn't a just-a-dinner smile a minute ago. Somebody is rescuing you from your destiny as a gloriously scruffy man, spinster. Her grin is gleeful. He'll get out of this faster if he plays along. Will scrubs his chin. It's pretty mighty scruff. Too soon to tell if it can be defeated. He holds his finger to his lips. So no telling. Beverly beams and mimes zipping her mouth shut. Her gaze flicks to behind Will's shoulder. Showtime, says Jack. As Will turns to go, Beverly whispers, knowing he can hear her. Try to get one of Freddy's hairs for a voodoo doll. Will's bubble of embarrassed cheerfulness lasts for a whole five minutes, until he walks into the room where Freddy Lowndes is waiting, when it disappears with an almost audible pop. I don't even know why they wanted me there, Will fumes, venting his anger on the hapless celery. The thock, thock, thock of Hannibal's knife meeting the cutting board is very satisfying. I hardly said anything. Authenticity? Hannibal suggests. Make it appear as if you agree with the ruse. I might as well have agreed with it. They sprang the plan while I was half asleep, and I couldn't convince them not to do it. Asleep? In the middle of the day? Hannibal takes the cutting board and scrapes the minced celery into the pan. At my desk. I must have nodded off for a second. That's concerning, Will. You should come to me before you reach that level of fatigue. Hannibal refills Will's wine. You're probably right. Have you had any more problems with sleepwalking? I trained my biggest dogs to lie on top of me and lick my face if I try to get out of bed without talking to them. His sheets are now all over dog hair, but that's better than dying of hypothermia, or being hit by a car, or falling off his fucking roof. Christ, he's such a mess. He doesn't know why Hannibal bothers. Hannibal leans over his sauté pan and sniffs it critically, then adds a pinch of some minced herbs from the dish beside the elements. A clever solution. How often do you wake up like that? Maybe every other night? It takes him hours to go back to sleep, even clutching Samson, the Bernese mix, like a teddy bear that narrowly outweighs him. And how many settled nights do you have after the last time you stayed here? You mean after you gave me one hell of a back rub and I went to sleep in a guest bed and woke up in yours? He'd felt weirdly sated after, even though the experience was only tangentially sexual. Um, three, I think? Well then, I suggest we plan to stay together twice a week, perhaps Tuesdays here and Fridays in Wolf Trap? Will gulps the wine in his mouth instead of spraying it everywhere. 
You can't seriously want to stay in Wolf Trap on a regular basis. Why not? I've done it before. Sure, drunk or monitoring me. It's a fine little house. You keep it very clean. Hannibal taps his own nose and transfers things between the pan and a dish warming in the oven. The whole building is probably worth less than your kitchen. Not to you, and therefore not to me. Will is not ready to unpack that. I'll think about it. What's for dinner? Hannibal smiles and starts describing the dish Will just helped prepare. As they're sitting down to eat, Hannibal says, I meant to ask, how did your interview with Dr. Gideon go yesterday? Strange, Will decides. He thinks he's the Ripper, except when he doesn't. He knows details of the case that were never released to the press, and the psychiatrist we spoke to, Frederick Chilton, he wants Gideon to be the Ripper. It's a mess. Or, it was a mess, and now that we're dropping Freddy Lowndes into the mix, it's going to be a disaster. You expect the Ripper to retaliate? Yes, so does Jack. He just hopes that in doing so, the Ripper will make a mistake and become visible. You think it's a vain hope? The article will no doubt be very insulting. I think it's going to backfire is what I think. Hannibal nods his understanding and shifts the conversation to lighter topics. As the evening winds down, Will finds himself unable to focus on the book he plucked off Hannibal's shelf, growing tense as he remembers the way Hannibal took him apart before tucking him into bed last time. He doesn't think he wants to do that tonight. He doesn't know what he might say or do while losing control. Finally, he skirts the issue entirely by standing, stretching, and saying, I think I'll turn in. Hannibal gives him a long look and then nods. All right. Will heads up to the guest bathroom and showers. There are already some pajamas laid out for him, and the toothbrush that Will supposes is his now. When he comes out of the bathroom, Hannibal is waiting outside. He's clearly washed up himself and is in his own pajamas. He gestures towards the master bedroom. My stairs are rather steep. I thought perhaps you could just begin the night where your feet are likely to carry you anyway, rather than risk a fall. Will's face burns. I'm sorry, again. And once again, there is nothing to be sorry for. You can't be held responsible for unconscious actions. Besides, it's a large bed, plenty of room. Will decides that it would inconvenience Hannibal even more if he tumbled down the stairs and climbs between Hannibal's sheets. Hannibal slips in behind him, and when Will rolls over, they are looking at each other with their heads on the pillows. Will surprises the look of startling warmth on Hannibal's face, quickly shielded, but telling all the same. What are you so happy about? Satisfying my instincts. The Sentinel protects the tribe, and the guide protects the Sentinel. I like knowing exactly where you are, and that you are taken care of. By you. By me. None of this is particularly surprising to hear. Hannibal's caretaking compulsion when it comes to Will are not exactly a state secret. However, Will is surprised to realize how much he likes hearing it. Still not a sentinel, he grouses, a token objection that is always blithely ignored. This time is no different. Sleep well, Will. You too. The bed is certainly large, but Will doesn't make use of the space for long. When he wakes in the middle of the night, he's backed up against Hannibal, so snugly that the two of them could be sleeping on a sofa. Hannibal's arm is thrown over Will's chest, keeping him anchored in place. Clearly, Hannibal's unconscious self wants Will there as much as his conscious self claimed. Despite being overheated, falling back to sleep is as easy as closing his eyes. 
Will's lifelong distrust of psychiatrists now works in Hannibal's favor. He is so disinterested in practical psychiatric techniques that he misses the obvious explanation, that Abel Gideon was the victim of psychic driving by an attention-hungry Frederick Chilton. If Will can't see such crude and clumsy mind control, it's no wonder he is responding so beautifully to Hannibal's infinitely subtler manipulations. For starters, Hannibal doesn't trick Will into doing anything Will doesn't already want, even when he lets Will retreat and withdraw. It only sharpens Will's instinctive need to be close to Hannibal. The rewards for Hannibal's patience have been rolling in steadily for some time now. Last night was a new milestone. Will lying down in Hannibal's bed, fully conscious, falling asleep with Hannibal watching beside him. The implicit trust was as thrilling as learning what Will's face looks like as he crosses the threshold of consciousness, as sweet as gathering his limp body into his arms. Hannibal passed the entire night that way, only tearing himself free just before dawn to give the impression he rose and busied himself after finishing his usual three hours of sleep. He's just putting the finishing touches on breakfast when Will shuffles into the kitchen, squinting and frowning, with his hands blocking the overhead light. His hair sticks up in all directions, and Hannibal's pajamas are too large on his frame. He looks rumpled and fragile, and like everything Hannibal never knew he was missing from his life. Hannibal is proud of himself for restraining his suggestion of scheduled sleepovers to two nights a week. He would move one of them permanently into the other's house today if he could. He would move to Wolf Trap. That's how far gone he is. For now, he pours Will some coffee and adds sugar before giving it to him. Will takes it with a grateful-sounding grunt. Hannibal can see the tiny pause as he dials down his sense of touch, and heat, before taking a sip, which means he slept dialed up, absorbing the comfort of Hannibal's bed. Hannibal is such a good guide. As his higher brain functions flicker back on, Will asks, What do you do with your extra hours awake? Watch you sleep. Whatever I like. Reading, writing, menu planning. I'm having some fellow psychiatrists over for dinner tonight so I went to Auguste Escoffer for inspiration. Only half a lie. He chose his dish of lamb tongues for Frederick and Alana immediately upon hearing Will's findings from interviewing Gideon. He could not have had half this much fun in a country where people still eat awful regularly. Real lamb tongues look nothing like human ones. Will grimaces. Ugh, networking. I'll be thinking of you as I eat trout with my dogs. The memory of the morning stays with Hannibal throughout the day. It's there as he suffers the indignity of the tattle crime article trumpeting Abel Gideon as the Chesapeake Ripper. Even in the photo for his own puff piece, the man hides behind the bars of his cell, clutching them like a child hiding behind coats in a closet. Hannibal fancies Gideon can sense his own implacable, however deferred, fate. As he steps patiently through the dance of a dinner with colleagues, Hannibal thinks about Will eating trout in his house. It would be a quiet meal were it not for the dogs clamoring for a bit of fish. It sweetens the sour note of Chilton at his table during what would otherwise be an enjoyable meal with Alana, his former student. It can't be avoided. Hannibal wants to confirm his suspicions of Chilton's ham-handed manipulation of Gideon. If Hannibal's play with Jack doesn't bear fruit, and it probably won't, it's an impulsive long shot, the one worth taking. Shelton is continually improving himself as Hannibal's ideal patsy. Sometimes, Will feels like a fly on the wall when Jack's forensic team is working. With their tools, they cover and exceed the capacity of Will's own senses, and together they voice a significant fraction of his own thoughts. Even Brian Zeller, 
I can't imagine the Chesapeake Ripper would start leaving prints at a crime scene now. And the print isn't the Ripper. It's Miriam Lass. Will turns to Jack. Did Miriam Lass know where you live? Jack's brows draw together. If she wanted to know, she was smart enough to find out. Tension makes his voice loud, forceful. He's not coping well with the invasion of his home, especially with the hair and the fingerprints reinforcing the upsetting possibility Will raised three days ago, that Lass could be alive. Will placates him by framing his reply as, Could have told the Chesapeake Ripper before he killed her. Did you know you were sending her after him? I sent her after information. Will has one insight to offer. Whoever made that phone call thinks you were close to Miriam Lass and feel responsible for her death. Jack looks like his mind is a million miles away, or maybe just two years in the past. His anguish stings Will's own eyes. Whoever made that phone call is right. It's funny. Will's very first thought is to wonder if it's Jack. When the last call comes, and they trace it to the observatory, and they find the ringing phone in the grasp of what has to be Miriam Lass's severed arm beside a note, the note makes him think of Jack, because the note reads, What do you see? And Jack asks Will that all the time. But that's insane. Jack's hatred for the Ripper, his pain over the loss of his trainee, those things are real, and Jack is... He's just too brusque to be the Ripper. He's not civilized enough to think himself so far above the pigs the Ripper slaughters. Will has a feel for the Ripper, however imperfect it may be, without seeing a complete tableau in person. And Jack is all wrong for it. The note has to be for Jack, a knockout blow to follow the sucker punch of the arm. Jack probably asked Miriam last that, just like he asked Will. The framing piece of the observatory. Look all you want, you won't find me. Will remembers the sound of his own voice saying, Jack asked me that all the time. Crisp winter air on his face, soft blankets under his back, Hannibal solid and warm beside him, staring up at the stars. No. Will's sight dials up, not entirely by choice. He zooms in on the note, sees the little tails on the letters like somebody who normally writes in flowing cursive, making their letters printed and round instead. The fancy cardstock, the thin lines of the blood, probably pipetted into an honest-to-God fountain pen, judging by the stray drops at the end. No, no. He somehow manages to keep his face impassive, but his heart hammers in his chest. The smells that fade normally when he walked in. Plastic sheeting, a hint of blood. Just a hint. He's willing to bet the arm was frozen and then thawed, to disguise how long ago it was severed. Becomes stronger and stronger in his awareness. And then it's like what happened when Hannibal touched him all over. Will. Can. Smell. More. Jack. Wool and silk. Sweat. Tears shed and wiped away. The remnants of deodorant applied in the morning, but long vaporized now. His breakfast. Something cheesy out of a microwave. Beverly. Leather and gun smoke from her coat. Unscented toiletries that won't cause testing errors in the lab. Sesame oil and bell peppers in her lunch. Will himself. Dogs. Fish. Soap. More sweat than Jack. An acrid tang he thinks must represent the chasm of fear yawning open inside him now, as he helplessly keeps cataloging. The arm. Blood. Bitter. Drug-laden. Cold raw meat and stale water. Melted ice. It was frozen. Disinfectant. Fresh flowers. And something else was here. Compared to the living presence of the others, the smell is like a shadow suspended on dust, but Will clamps his jaw shut on a whine of agony because he knows the smell. 
fresh herbs, wine. The same premium coffee Will was drinking just yesterday morning, swaddled in the protective warmth and utter safety of Hannibal's house. The wordless scent that must be Hannibal's skin. His aprosine sweat, subtle but unique to every human being. Stamped in Will's lizard brain as trustworthy, as special and important. No, please, God, no. Will? Jack looks concerned. You gonna zone out on me? Do I need to call Dr. Lecter? Will represses a hysterical laugh, then squeezes his eyes shut and shakes his head, hard. The hypersomnia vanishes again, but the knowledge it brought sits like a cannonball on Will's stomach. No, just... He rubs the back of his neck. Here we go, you know? Jack's expression clears. He thinks Will is just shaken by his first unequivocal Ripper crime scene. He nods tiredly. I know. See anything? Yes. Nothing that isn't obvious. I'm... I need to get home. You do that, Jack says vaguely, waving Will off, already lost again to his reverie, thrown off balance by the Rippers, by Hannibal's manipulation. Will feels pretty off balance himself. He nearly causes a crash when he starts to turn off to Hannibal's house, then catches himself and swerves wildly to head for Wolf Trap instead. A chorus of furious honks follows him onto the freeway. He passes the rest of the drive in a numb daze. He's not worried about zoning. His senses are all dialed down, pulled in tight like a shellfish. When he gets home, his pack doesn't go far. Despite being cooped up all day, they pee in return, milling around him with dark, worried eyes. When he tries to get up from the porch steps, Winston puts paws on his thighs and starts licking his face as if to wake him up. Will buries his face in his ruff and cries. Not for long. Just a few ugly, shocking sobs. He would have felt better if there were more, honestly. But the storm passes as swiftly as it came on, and Will is left contemplating the wreckage. Is he sure? Yes. Oh, yes. A final gasping sob rips its way out of his chest. So why didn't he say anything? That he's less sure of. Would anyone believe him? Frederick Chilton's word echo in his head. Fours are, of course, the rarest group of odd bodies. Reliably unstable. It would sound like a wild accusation by a panicked, late-manifesting sentinel. God. With smell coming online, he's five by fucking five, isn't he? Christ. That's just what he needs to deal with right now. Jack might take him seriously enough to investigate, but would it do any good? The Chesapeake Ripper is so careful, so thorough in his compositions, that Will has been furtively, guiltily appreciating him for years. There was a very real possibility that the FBI could look right at Hannibal Lecter and find nothing. Miriam last found something, but whatever mistake Hannibal made with her, he'll be careful not to make again. The very fact that he's still thinking of him as Hannibal is so very damning in itself. He doesn't want to say anything. Well then, what does he want? We'll sit on the porch for a long time, trying to think of an answer to that. 